здесь мой дом, я приехал сюда, и я приезжаю, меня все спрашивают, боишься, не боишься? Я не боюсь. Те люди, которые сейчас обиделись на то, что они меня все-таки не убили, и я выжил, и теперь угрожают меня посадить. Владимир Путин has apparently eliminated another opponent. Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, an anti-corruption activist who has battled the Putin regime for decades, has died in a prison inside the Arctic Circle. The announcement came just hours before we recorded today's podcast, so if it looks like we are scrambling, it is because we are. Russia's Federal Penitentiary Service said Navalny lost consciousness on Friday, February 16th, that's today, after a walk. But a day earlier, in, a, in his last public appearance, he appeared healthy and jovial in a court appearance by a video link, which makes his sudden death, to put it mildly, more than a tad bit suspicious. Not since the November 2015 uh, assassination of Boris Nemtsov has such a prominent opposition leader been killed. And yes, I am comfortable calling this an assassination, too. We'll discuss this requiem for a dissident, give you our initial reactions and assess what this means going forward. So stick around. Hello from my makeshift office studio in Washington, D.C.'s trendy DuPont Circle neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington's historic Capitol Hill neighborhood is the one and only Jeff Bankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. I should also add that Jeff's views are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of the NDU or the United States Department of Defense. Welcome back to The Vertical, Jeff. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. So, I mean, we were planning to do something else today, but we're doing this, um, at least in the first half. So Leonid Volkov, Navalny's longtime chief of staff, uh, wrote on Twitter, quote, if this is true, then it's not Navalny died, but Putin killed Navalny and only that. Navalny indeed joins a long and growing list of Putin's opponents who have met suspicious and untimely ends. Boris Nemtsov, Sergei Magnitsky, Natalia Yastamirova, Alexander Litvinenko, Anna Politkovskaya, Sergei Yushchenkov, not to mention one-time allies like Yevgeny Prigozhin. Jeff, what are your top-line thoughts on this? We're all still just kind of digesting it. It's only hours old. Yeah, I guess a couple of things I would posit, and again, these are very preliminary reflections. One, I think that this sort of thing, assuming it was an assassination, probably wouldn't have happened but for um, the state of, of Russia today and, and the, the war, um, which is in Ukraine, which has produced a rapid uh, closing off of political space and increase in, uh, you know, really draconian sort of authoritarian measures. And I think that's because on the one hand, uh, the Kremlin is less afraid of the outside world's reaction because, you know, already the West, the United States and, and Europe is putting a lot of, of pressure on the regime uh, over its behavior in Ukraine. So there's not really, uh, you know, another step up the escalation ladder that I think that the, the Kremlin leadership is worried about for eliminating an opponent on Russian territory, but that the danger 
that the Kremlin perceives internally is also higher because of uh, the strains imposed by the war and mobilization and the the potential for uh, people's standards of living to be negatively impacted. And I think, you know, we have a, a quote unquote election coming up in Russia uh, as well. And, you know, that's something we can talk about today if you're interested too. Yeah, but, no, we can get into that. Um, but, you know, I, I think the combination of uh, a, a period of uh, pretty dramatic confrontation with the West, um, where it seems like the U.S. and Europe are already using most of the tools in their in their toolkit to go after the regime in Russia, means that there probably wasn't a lot of additional marginal cost in terms of Russia's relationship with the West for eliminating somebody like Navalny, who I think otherwise, uh, you know, they would, they'd be a little more cautious about. And again, you know, the concern for domestic stability um, or for regime security, let's say, suggests that wanting to make sure things are locked down as much as possible before the quote-unquote election happens. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that jumped out at me, and you kind of noted the, the costs of doing something like this, again, assuming that it was an assassination, and I am assuming that. I'm, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I'm, I, I think that, I mean, I, uh, he looked fine yesterday, and then suddenly mm -hmm. he just drops dead today. But recall, Jeff, like 10 years ago, the summer of 2013, mm -hmm. the first time Navalny was imprisoned. Fury right. Over, right? The mm -hmm. Kirov Let's case. Yeah. Right. Within a day, within 24 hours, they released him um, because there were massive protests in right. the center of Moscow. There were kids climbing up the walls of the State Duma. I remember covering that and watching it and monitoring a Radio Free Europe. Navalny's released the next day. He arrives in Moscow at the same train station that Andrei Sakharov arrived at after mm -hmm. being released from exile to a, to a raucous crowd. There was a feeling then that they feared him, yeah. that they feared do, even imprisoning him was going to be dangerous for the regime. Yeah. Now they're cool killing him. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, unlike a lot of the other people that you talked about as falling victim to uh, assassination in Putin's Russia or because of Putin's Russia, I think it was pretty clear Navalny had political ambitions. Um, yeah. You know, he ran for office. He, I think, has positioned himself as a potential, uh, you know, future national leader, which therefore makes the the stakes of continuing to have to deal with him that much higher. And I think you're right that the the response uh, when he was arrested before suggests that, you know, he the, the Kremlin recognized that this is a person who has the capability to be a really effective politician or political leader. And okay, he wasn't going to run for president from prison, but, you know, his ability to have some impact on the the you know, upcoming quote unquote elections, I think is is probably not insignificant either. Yeah, he was encouraging from prison. He was encouraging his supporters to basically do the, the smart voting uh, yeah. that he's basically spearheaded, which is vote for anybody. Vote for the non candidate. Vote for the communist. I don't care. Yeah. Vote for whoever, but don't vote for Putin just to embarrass them. Again, They he did that in the 2011 state Duma elections. In fact, there was a debate between him and Yemtsov on the, on yeah. the eve of those mm -hmm. elections, boycott or smart voting. And mm -hmm. I mean, with all due respect to my, my late friend, Boris Yemtsov, Navalny was right about that. The smart voting was extremely effective. He was like trying to deploy that again um, in, in these elections. I'm wondering if that was the reason of of, of why now. I mean, they've tried to kill him already. Yeah. Remember, they, they poisoned yeah, him in they 2020. they tried to poison him on the, on the flight. 
yeah. in 2020. So they're certainly not above trying to eliminate him, but they, they seem to have him neutralized in prison. I mean, his organization yeah. was still active. How do you, I mean, how do you see the calculus? Why now? Well, I, I think we touched on the why now already, but why did they decide that this was necessary? Again, assuming that this was an, an assassination ordered from the top. And I do think there you know, are reasons to question how much of a monopoly on the use of a force on Russian territory Vladimir Putin has, right? I think some of these other uh, assassinations that you talked about, you know, were carried out not necessarily on the orders of the Kremlin, although the Kremlin certainly didn't punish anybody for them. And I think even in the in the current environment, you know, it's it, it's it's hard to say, uh, you know, whether this is something that was directly ordered, whether it was carried out by somebody a couple rungs down. You know, we we just don't have enough information to to assess that. But I think that you know the the context around the the elections and you know the state of the relationship with between Russia and the outside world, you know, raised the 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 threat perception that at least people around Putin, if not Putin himself, um, perceived from Navalny. And part of this too, to to bring it back to the elections, is the the Boris Nedyezhdin phenomenon, who you know was emerging as the kind of uh, alternative rallying point for this election, you know, wasn't allowed to appear on the ballot, but had succeeded in, in getting an enormous number of signatures on an explicitly anti-war platform. And what that suggests to me is that there is a pretty big reservoir of opposition mm-hmm. at the societal level in Russia for the current state of affairs. And Nadezhdin, who I think was much less of a, a threatening figure to, to the Kremlin than Navalny, you know, he, he is a product of the system. Being able to do that, you know, suggests that, that there's reason for that threat perception to to exist and to worry that, you know, even though elections in Russia are often are, are heavily controlled affairs, that the potential for something to go wrong was pretty high. And, and you know, given the state of affairs and, and the war and the sanctions, you know, the, if things were to go awry, the consequences for Putin and, and for the regime writ large could be pretty serious. Yeah, no, I think you're right there. I think they made a threat, that kind of a cost-benefit risk assessment with these elections coming up. But these elections are important to them as rituals, right? They got to yeah. go off the way they 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 want. The Nadezhdin thing surprised them. I, mean, I don't know if you saw Mikhail Zigar's piece in the New York Times yesterday, in which he he kind of lays out that Nadezhdin was kind of a a a, a, a creature of Kirienko, the deputy Kremlin chief of staff who runs the poor politics portfolio. He was supposed to play the role that Ksenia Subcheck played yeah. uh, back six years ago. But then suddenly, like as Mikhail wrote, the puppet came to life. Yeah, it was um, a little like the um, the Sorcerer's Apprentice. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that must have spooked them and that may have like sparked the decision to uh to 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 eliminate Navalny. And I yeah, yeah you're right. There isn't it, evidence that go ahead, Jeff. I was gonna say there, there's one more thought that I had, which is that Navalny has played such a unique role in the Russian political system over the last decade and a half. Because on the one hand, he is this galvanizing figure and sort of symbol of the opposition, but also it's clear that he's had good ties with people, you know, very close to the centers of power. You know, how did he get all of the information that he had about, you know, Putin's palace or about the the spending habits of, of Dmitry Medvedev or, or the, the patriarch, right? There clearly are people, you know, who have access to this kind of information who are providing it to Navalny or people on Navalny's team. 
whether out of a sense of, of moral obligation or out of political calculation or, or whatever it is. And so Navalny was always useful to a lot of people within the system. You know, he was kind of a, a check in some ways on the, the, the worst impulses of, of people in power. And I think, again, if you are worried about the solidity of the regime and the potential for instability around these elections, then, you know, part of that comes from how much can you trust your own people if they're using Navalny as part of a, you know, their own political machination struggle for influence as bulldogs fighting under the rug in, in the halls of power. So again, I think that this concern about regime stability and security, the potential for for splits the potential for you know people to you know take advantage of the outlet that Navalny and his people offered uh, as a way of settling scores internally you know that all kind of raises the stakes around this given the the, the present moment yeah in terms of his usefulness to some factions within the regime I have also heard that there are those on the inside you may have heard this too uh, who kind of viewed Navalny as a safety valve if, yeah. if the if the whole thing goes sideways and comes down at some point they did want to have somebody on the other side of the ramparts that they could talk to um there was that but in today's russia there doesn't seem to be any room for that yeah and that's all. exactly it and i think you know whoever made this decision again we're assuming that this is it was a conscious decision taken by somebody pretty high up in the in the system to eliminate navalny yeah, you know, it suggests that they are trying to close off these yeah. escape valves, that it's, you know, a way of making sure that all the passengers go down with the ship if the ship's going to go down. Right, right. And as far as like how, you know, I mean, we don't have direct evidence of Putin ordering. Putin doesn't operate that way of ordering these things. It's, it's kind of like, you know, <clears throat> who will rid me of this troublesome priest yeah, kind of a, exactly. a situation. Nemtsov, by all accounts, it was Kadyrov. Yeah. Also Estimirova. Estimirova, yeah. But basically, Putin sets the broad parameters. Nobody's going to do something that they, they think Putin is going to disapprove of, right? Yeah. So, Although the Nemtsov thing, it sounds like, created a, a little mini crisis that had yes. to be hashed out. You talked about the, well, no one rid me of this troublesome priest example, right? But, you know, it's notable that that was not, what was it, Henry II? I forget which which Henry it was who, who made that remark. He regretted it afterwards and, like, did a did penance over it. Um, right. Whereas like, that is has not happened in the Russian context, right? Even if, you know, Putin hasn't ordered the assassination of the Nemtsovs or the Estimirovas or, or whomever, right? There's never been a, a, an apology or a penance or somebody, you know, being punished for it. Yeah, the closest we came was after the Nemtsov assassination when Putin disappeared from public view for yeah. for for, uh, for a About while. A yeah, it was like a week. Um, there was speculation that he was dead. Um, there was um, and Kadyrov incidentally disappeared in that period too. Mm -hmm. um, and then when they both emerged, Putin gave Kadyrov a another medal was, so uh, i mean again go ahead jeff i was, I was gonna say you know the in the, the in the best sort of russian mafia traditions you know there's this the concept of the rozborka where the right. you know the feuding clans kind of have a sit down and try and work things out between them and you know I, my assessment of the the, the putin kadyrov discussions in the aftermath of of the um the killing of Boris Nemtsov was very much in that context yeah uh, it was like no, okay we had, now we have a dispute we're going to have a sit down we're going to try and figure this out hopefully without anybody getting killed but if it leads to that you know people might get killed yeah and then the lesson the takeaway from that and Kadyrov had to say Vladimir Vladimirovich I was right 
You know, you got away with this. Nothing happened. No, nothing to be yeah. worried about. I eliminated an opponent for you. A trouble mm-hmm. that troublesome priest is gone. And uh, and and um, I mean, it's painful to talk about that. Given that I was I was friends with Nemsov, but um, but it worked, right? Yeah. I remember back in time, and I remember what I was writing back in 2015, and I saw that as a watershed. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a watershed event because up until that point, nobody is high ranking of Nemsov. They've been killed. That was yeah. that broken unwritten rule. And, and I thought it might bring the regime down, but it didn't. And, you know, I remember I I quoted this in, in my book that you mentioned, but uh, Joshua Yaffa, who's the, uh, the New Yorker correspondent yeah. who was in Moscow at the time, interviewed Gleb Pavlovsky, the longtime sort of Kremlin spin doctor who also worked in Ukraine after the, the Nemtsov assassination. And he quoted Pavlovsky as saying, the killing of of Nemtsov really spooked the Kremlin because it suggested that if the Chechens, if Kadyrov could do something like this outside the Spassky Gate, well, maybe they could do it inside the Spassky Gate too. Mm. And that was part of the of the concern. It was that you know maybe Kadyrov was getting a little bit too big for his britches and had you know aspirations that went beyond just trying to control Chechnya. Yeah, no, I I do remember those those fears at the time, but but. That all passed, right? Yeah. And they, they learned a lesson from that, a very deadly lesson, I would mm-hmm. argue. Um, I mean, and like when that happened, I said the only thing bigger than this could be Navalny getting killed. Well, now Navalny's gotten killed. I saw the Nemtsov assassination as a watershed, you know, back back in 2015. What about this? Do you see a yeah. watershed? Are we going to be in? A, is are we in a different Russia anymore? Now it can can, can it get yeah. any worse? Is it gone full Stalin? Where where are we? Yeah, we are in a new Russia now. It's been clear we're, we're in a. I mean, thankfully we're not in Russia, right. but. Um, that we have a new Russia now. I think that's been clear since February 24th, 2022. You know, I think the difference now is that I don't think you're going to see the kind of protests uh, around the killing of Navalny that you saw in, t- in 2015 around the killing of Nemtsov, both because people are scared, but also because the regime has just closed off so much space for public expression. And I just, you know, I don't see that kind of mass mobilization under current circumstances being possible. At the same time, you know, before I used the metaphor of, you know, kind of burning the lifeboats. And I think that's also the case now in a way that it it wouldn't have been before. Because, you know, again, if you think of Navalny as having been kind of like a release valve for people within the system, a way for them to, you know, leak compromise, to, you know, have somebody among the opposition who potentially you could work with if things go pear-shaped, you know, now they don't have that. And now I think it's going to be very, very hard for people on the inside. And it's become increasingly, this was increasingly the case since February 2020. 22. But now even more, I think it's increasingly hard for people on the inside to see themselves, you know, getting a uh, a place if all of this goes. It's they've thrown in their lot with Putin and with the war and with the repressions. And if it all comes apart, and I for one think the the odds of it coming apart are probably higher than a lot of other US-based analysts do, those people are screwed. And I think they recognize that. And that's, you know, probably in part a deliberate strategy to make it clear that if you're in the defense ministry or the security services or wherever, you don't have any choice. Like you have to go along with this, whether you like it or not. 
And the other, the flip side of what you're what you're saying there, Jeff, is if you look at the opposition, there isn't really any any opposition left to speak of when you think about it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, with Navalny gone and obviously Boris Nemtsov gone, you have uh, the other key opposition figures like Vladimir Milov are in, in, in exile in Europe. Yeah. In, you have uh, Ilya Yashin in prison, uh, Vladimir Katamorza in prison, right? uh, Boris Kagarlitsky just got well, a five-year sentence. Yeah, I was gonna say I don't think of him as an opposition figure, but yeah, he's a public intellectual who's opposition oriented, um, left opposition oriented. But the point is that there's nobody of any stature left. Yeah, well, and that's deliberate, I'm sure. Yeah, the other thing to think about here is uh, what those other opposition figures in prison are thinking right now. They are as vulnerable as can be. I mean, they tried to poison Karamurza twice. I'd be very careful. I mean, I'd be, again, another friend of ours. I'd be very careful. Yeah. I I mean, yeah, I was was reminded of of Navalny's remark after the the first time they tried, or it was during his trial where he, uh, you know, referred to Putin in the context of Russian leaders and said, you know, we had Ivan the Terrible and we had Peter the Great and now we have Vladimir the Poisoner of Underpants. Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, I will miss his humor uh, because he was he was pretty hilarious. Remember when he went into prison the first day, he cited the wire. He said, you only remember two days, the day you go in and the day you come out. Um, so, um, yeah, I will certainly miss his uh, his humor. Another thing I wanted to talk about before we kind of move into the second half is uh, his legacy. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I always thought the importance of Navalny, and I thought this is back as when he first appeared in the scene back in 2010, 2011, mm-hmm. was that he got Russians to think of themselves as citizens. I was really struck when he arrived at, I believe it was Yaroslavsky Voxal in the summer of 2013 from prison, and he was giving a speech, and somebody yelled from the audience, we garajani. We are citizens, right? And that I thought was revolutionary of Russians mm-hmm. thinking of themselves as citizens, which yeah. I, at the time argued that this is what makes Navalny dangerous, dangerous. to the regime. Yeah. yeah. How, do you does this legacy endure? All the people he inspired, do they mm-hmm. do they now hide and hide in their closets now, or do they do they, do they continue this legacy? It's there's we don't know, obviously. But what's your yeah. what's your sense? Well, I was going to say there are other alternatives too, which is that. They can be uninspired or they can, you know, mm. decide that, okay, well, that was nice, but th- th- that's not the world we live in. I think if they're hiding in their closets, that's actually a positive sign because nothing is forever, right? Stalin dies and then, you know, Khrushchev appears and we have the thaw. But, you know, if it is that kind of epochal change where you have a generation now that actually believes in this ideal of citizenship, then you know, that's not going to go away. It may not make much of a difference today or tomorrow, but if it's still there down the road, I mean, it's going to be a very different Russia at some point. You know, I'm not sure one way or the other how true that is. I think certainly that was the direction that Navalny was trying to move the population. Mm -hmm. But I also don't know how widespread that effect was. I mean, it was clear that, you know, Navalny's supporters were concentrated among generally narrow circle of of Russian, I don't want to say liberals, but, you know, more liberal-minded elites, uh, even though they were sometimes uncomfortable with his views on, you know, the war in Ukraine or, or inter-ethnic relations. You know, he was not a, he and I think the ideas he represented 
inspired you know particular elements within the russian population and i think maybe had what he was trying to do been allowed to go on longer those ideas and the the inspiration that it provided might have spread more broadly but at this point you know i don't know but my assumption is that you know the the change that he heralded is may be real, but is limited to, you know, certain segments of the population. Yeah, they tended to be more affluent, more urban, younger. Um, there was, but, but again, this was this was the rising Russia, or so we thought 10 years ago. Yeah. Well, and now uh, all that rising Russia is in Istanbul or Dubai or right. Tbilisi. Yeah. Well, again, like I said, this is these this is early. This literally, uh, we literally learned of this hours ago. Um, as we're recording, these are just just hot takes. I'm sure we're going to kind of dive into this more going forward. I mean, what this signals to me though is the gloves are really off now. And you know, the, Russia doesn't have a death penalty, but it may as well. And it's it's. I mean, it is going apparently full Stalin. Um, well, I mean, yes and no, right? Like, not we full don't Stalin have... in the numbers, but in the, yeah. in the tactics. Yeah, I, I was going to say we don't have the kind of wide-scale repression that you had in the in the Stalin period. Like ordinary people aren't worried about Black Maria's showing up outside their house at three in the morning, and I think that's actually important because you know it suggests that there's still you know some degree of of consent. Uh, on which the the regime is based, and certainly they've used the war, they've used you know the idea of patriotism uh, in order to generate some of that public support. And even if you discount to some degree the figures that you get from like Levada Center polls, I don't think that the regime is facing a crisis of legitimacy. Now that may come. It may come if the war goes badly, people are being asked to sacrifice for a losing war. Uh, especially if that entails, say, another wave of mobilization. It could happen if the economy starts to stumble, which I think is a, a genuine prospect over the next, let's say, nine to 12 months. Uh, so, you know, we don't know if the state has the capacity to go full Stalin. I mean, if nothing else, the state has been hollowed out quite a bit, but so far it, it hasn't had to, right? It's kind of a selective Stalinization. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I mean by that is that the regime is now relying entirely on fear, right? I mean, you think like political change to Ru comes to Russia historically when three factors are present, right? A divided elite, a disaffected mm -hmm. public, and an absence of fear. Yeah, well, he was dividing, right? Mm -hmm. no, you would add to that three? Well, no, I would say that I don't know about the absence of fear. I think sometimes even when there is fear, um, you can have change. Mm. Um, but I think we're not at that point now because the public is still largely on board. And I think in part because it has its day-to-day -day life hasn't been affected that dramatically for most people by the war in Ukraine. And th that's why mobilization seems to be such a, a third rail. So, um, I, you know, I can see it going in a lot of different directions. I, I think, you know, Russia's always been a country with an unpredictable past, but I think it's also right. right now a country with an unpredictable future. Right, right. No, I mean, I, I think they're doubling down on fear. I mean, I think that's because yeah. that, 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 that's really all they got right now. Yeah, uh, but it's the, it's still selective. The, the, the repression under Putin has always been Selective, yeah. yeah. Well, selective and arbitrary, yes. And I think it's becoming more intense and targeting more people and more and more 
more and more space is being closed off. The things that are prohibited, the list of things that is prohibited is growing, but you know, it's, it's still selective. And I think for a lot of people, you know, it's just kind of a thing that hangs in the background. It's, it, it, it is in that sense different from, from the Stalin years. Well, we will be, I'm sure, dissecting this in the weeks to come. Again, this is we we had to pull this together pretty quickly in terms of this topic. I had a completely different topic lined up for today. <laughs> this is a good way to segue into that topic. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion. Shift gears and look at some of Ukraine's surprising maritime military successes, which is not bad for mm -hmm. a country that doesn't even have a Navy. Uh, I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Washington, D.C.'s historic Capitol Hill neighborhood is the one and only Jeff Mankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies. That's a mouthful. And author of the recently published book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. I should also add that Jeff's views are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of the NDU or the U.S. Department of Defense. I'd also like to remind you that you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can still follow us on the platform formerly known as the Twitter at Power Vertical. You can also follow us on Threads and Blue Sky at Power Vertical, and you should check out the new Power Vertical newsletter on Substack. Перше, дякую Збройним силам України, дякую воїнам ГУР, групі 13, 9-го департаменту. Сьогодні додалось ще безпеки у Чорному морі. І ще мотивації нашим людям. І це важливо. І ми крок за кроком очистимо Чорне море від російських терористичних об'єктів. So as I noted, for a country without a navy, Ukraine is doing a pretty good job of disabling Russian sea power. The April 2022 sinking of Russia's flagship, the Moskva, turned out not to be a one-off, but something of a harbinger. Ukraine this week sank the Caesar Kuniko, a large Russian amphibious landing ship off the coast of Crimea. This marks the 25th time Ukraine has disabled a Russian warship since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. Overall, Ukraine has sank not just 25 warships, but also one submarine. And that accounts for one-third of Russia's Black Sea fleet. The Caesar Kunikov was sunk by a Ukrainian Special Forces unit known as Group 13 using Magura V-5 sea drones. And it represents the latest example of Kyiv's military reach. In September 2023, for example, Ukrainian Storm Shadow SEALP cruise missiles penetrated Russian air defense and struck the headquarters of the Black Sea fleet in occupied Sevastopol. Jeff, our mutual friend Michael Kaufman said in this podcast uh, about a month ago that we should expect more of these types of attacks mm -hmm. uh, after the Ukrainian counteroffensive came up short. Uh, the frontline 
deadlocked. We we should expect Ukraine's strategy, in addition to kind of replenishing its front lines in the Donbass this year, the, where they're going to go on the offensive is away from the front lines. Mm-hmm. It's going to be trying to disrupt Russian naval activity in, 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 in the Black Sea, disrupt Russian military activity and assets in Crimea. How do you view this? Uh, I mean, how, how do you see this apparent strategy? I know you pay a lot of attention mm-hmm. to Black Sea security. Is this just the asymmetrical tactics of a weaker party, or is there something broader afoot here? Well, it's a couple of different things. I think, you know, one, it's based on the fact that it's effective, right? The Mm -hmm. Ukrainians have figured out that they have the capabilities to target Russian assets at sea using shore-based fires. And that's, you know, the result of technological developments, kind of the stage of of naval and and coastal warfare that we're, we're currently at. So, you know, where do they have the opportunities to strike Russian targets. The Black Sea is is a uh, is a pretty inviting you know target set. It also you know is important strategically for Ukraine. A lot of what the Black Sea fleet has been doing has been trying to establish sea control and disrupt Ukrainian exports. And we remember the um, the grain blockade that existed into last year. Now, Russia walked away from the deal that had been negotiated by the Turks to open up the grain corridor. Mm-hmm. The Ukrainians in you know carrying out these strikes against Russian naval assets, kind of pushing them back, has that's been one pillar of their strategy for opening up an alternative uh, export corridor. So Ukraine is still able to export significant amounts of of grain. I think they're exporting about two thirds of what they were before the war started. Mm -hmm. So, you know, with losses, but still pretty substantial given the, the kind of challenges they face and keeping the Russian naval assets away from their port infrastructure and then imposing costs on them is is one way to help keep that that corridor open. You know, I think it, it's obviously good for morale uh, on the Ukrainian yeah. side. It imposes costs on the Russian side, especially, you know, in this case, you, you noted it was a, a landing ship. Uh, so that impacts Russia's ability to conduct amphibious operations, to move troops, and, you know, therefore affects operational planning on the Russian side as well. You know, we've seen the Russian Black Sea Fleet increasingly pulled back uh, mm-hmm. from Sevastopol and, and from Crimea uh, in general because of the danger that it faces from, you know, these Ukrainian uh, aerial drones, now sea drones, um, anti-ship cruise missiles, and, and various other capabilities. So that kind of gives the Ukrainian civilian shipping greater leeway to operate in the Western Black Sea and keep the Grain Corridor open. And it reduces Russia's ability to use those naval platforms to strike targets on land, including grain warehouses, refineries, and other things that, that Russia has been targeting as part of its economic warfare against the Ukrainians. Right. So, so it's blunting Russia's offensive capabilities um, as well. I mean, in terms of resupply and things like that. I mean, I have to say, I mean, this seems like an effective strategy. If Ukraine's not going to be able to move that front line this year, mm-hmm. and every every military analyst I talk to who's a lot smarter than me on those those issues tells me they're not going to move that front line this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, this seems like the only thing they they can do. Jeff, you pay a lot of attention to Black Sea security. What is this? What's this doing to the Black Sea balance of power? I mean, which is, which is effectively a front yeah. line between Russia and the West. Yeah, well, it's certainly depriving Russia of naval capabilities, you know, both 
the ones that have been sunk, but also by pushing more and more of the assets that it does have away from the western part of the Black Sea is opening up opportunities for for other powers to act in in that region. And it's important to note here too that the the Black Sea Straits remain closed to warships. Turkey invoked um, the Montreux Convention early in the in the war, so Russia hasn't been able to move ships from the Eastern Mediterranean, let's say, into the Black Sea to replenish its losses. So, so it's a littoral state. So what they got in there, they can they can they can only use what they already had inside yes. the Black Sea. Right. Okay. They can't they can't move new platforms from the Mediterranean through the Straits into uh, the Black Sea. So th over time, you know, this has led to a diminution of, of Russian naval capabilities. Now, as you noted, Ukraine doesn't have a navy. Among the other littoral states, you know, Romania and Bulgaria have relatively small, you know, primarily Coast Guard-like forces. Turkey is a significant naval power right. um, with its own, you know, sort of agendas. And then there's Georgia, which also doesn't really have a navy. So it is shifting the balance of power. But because of the closure of the Straits and, and the Madrid Convention, it's not like NATO is going to be, you know, moving ships in either. That's right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, so, but, but the one other thing. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay, just, the one other thing I would add is, you know, because. Russia has been forced to pull a lot of its naval platforms back from the Western Black Sea and even from Crimea, right? More and more of them are being homeported in uh, Novorossiysk, which is the main Russian naval base uh, on the sort of eastern coast of the Black Sea. But there's also been discussion in the last couple of months about Russia establishing a naval uh, station of some kind in Abkhazia. Uh, which is the occupied part of, of Georgia that borders on the Black Sea. And so, you know, whether or not this happens, we don't know. But that would certainly complicate the dynamics with Georgia and with Abkhazia, which, you know, even though is under a lot of Russian control, the Abkhaz population and leadership, you know, ha has tried to assert themselves as an autonomous player as much as possible and not, you know, become a complete satellite of Russia. If there's a Russian naval base there, that's going to make that a lot harder. It's going to make it harder to, you know, think about the eventual reintegration of Abkhazia into Georgia. So this is, you know, I, I think another thing to watch. Yeah, no, this dynamic is, is I think, might be one of the key things to watch in the war this year, because as you pointed out, um, with the Straits closed, there's a finite number of Russian ships in the Black Sea, right? Each time Ukraine takes one out, and apparently according to the data I'm looking at, they've taken about a third of them out. Mm -hmm. uh, that that ship can't be replaced. Right. right? A ship right. Can't and be again, replaced. other ships have to be pulled further back. Right. So that they don't share the same fate. You know, if you if you neutralize the threat at sea, how does that, other than kind of disrupting some resupply and logistical efforts, how does that change the dynamic of the war on the ground in Ukraine? I'm, I'm thinking yeah. out loud here, but... Yeah, I was going to say, that's probably a question for Mr. Kaufman. Yes. But, <laughs> um, my perception of it would be that, again, one of the big threats to Ukraine is, I mean, one, the severing of its access to the Black Sea, both because of Russian troop positioning on land, but also because of the, the naval operations. So it, it complicates that. But moreover, as the front lines have kind of stabilized in the east, Russia has increasingly pivoted to what you might call counter-value targeting, targeting Ukrainian infrastructure, grain warehouses, right, mm -hmm. uh, power plants, uh, and then, you know, things like schools. These attacks are being carried out using a range of platforms, but naval missiles are a big part of it. And so if you diminish Russia's capabilities to, you know, launch strikes uh, against Ukrainian infrastructure from the Black Sea, that's certainly 
helping uh, Ukraine in the economic war. Now, Russia still is going to maintain the capability to carry out those strikes using other kinds of platforms. Um, you know, multiple rocket launchers, you know, missiles of various types that are launched from land. But anything you can do to diminish Russia's capability to carry out those kind of strikes is, is going to be a win for Ukraine. Yeah, no, and it's certainly going to be give some relief to cities like Odessa that yeah. have been subject to, uh, to to Russian bombardment. The other piece of this, and I alluded to it in my kind of come my, my, my lead up. Um, was the September 2023 attack on the Black Sea Fleet headquarters in Sevastopol. Ukraine has been very effective at hitting targets in Crimea on the peninsula, mm -hmm. disrupting yeah. Russian kind of military operations and logistics on the peninsula. Now, I, my understanding from talking to people that know a lot more about this than me, Crimea is kind of central yeah. to the Russian logistical operation. Um, in Ukraine, if you kind of neutralize their ability to use Crimea yeah. as a platform, you kind of change the game. I mean, Ben Hodges talks about a lot of th th this a bit, as does Michael Kaufman. What, what, yeah. What's your take there? Yeah, well, because we've been talking about the Russian Navy, right? But it also affects civilian shipping or, I mean, not civilian, but things, you know, not just warships, but right. uh, troop carriers, supply carriers. And so, yeah, I mean, if, if Russia can no longer, you know, move personnel or, or move equipment by sea, that's going to complicate their ability to, you know, sustain their positions in eastern Ukraine um, as well. And I do think that, you know, the Ukrainian side has been pretty transparent that cutting off Crimea, making uh, the Russian position in Crimea unviable is pretty central to their military strategy, both because of the disruptions to logistics that you spoke about, but also because of the just symbolic and, and political importance that Putin has assigned to Crimea. If Crimea suddenly becomes unviable as a Russian position, whether because the Ukrainians sever the land bridge, which is what they were trying to do with the counteroffensive this fall, or through, you know, making the the assets there unviable by just continually striking them, then, you know, the whole kind of rationale for this entire war of conquest against Ukraine that really has been going on since the annexation of Crimea in 2014 becomes a lot harder to sustain. Yeah, no, it's it's um the centrality of Crimea here is um, it, it's something that people have been talking about, and now we're seeing it in action. And what we you mentioned the the, the land bridge, um, cutting off the land bridge, that's not going to happen anytime soon. But this seems like the next best alternative. Um, and I'm wondering if this doesn't kind of push back on the narrative that things are going poorly in the war right now for Ukraine. Mm -hmm. um, we see you know, Ukraine losing territory around Avdivka right now. If anybody has the initiative on the front line in, in Donbass, it's Russia. But then this is the other side of the war. And it, it, it seems to me Ukraine's doing a lot better mm -hmm. um, in this narrative of Ukraine losing right now is probably incorrect. No, You know, before he was fired, uh, General Zaluzhny gave that interview to The Economist a couple of months ago where he talked about the war settling into stalemate. Mm -hmm. And I think that's actually a, a better description of where we are rather than that Ukraine is losing. I think what we have are, are front lines that have largely stabilized. The Russians do seem to have the operational uh, initiative, but the gains are, you know, in single digits of, of kilometers. And just sort of based on again, the kind of technological balance of forces as they exist today and the role of things like drones and, you know, precision-guided munitions are just making up offensive operations harder on both sides. So the Ukrainian strategy since the fall has been to pivot to the defensive, try and, you know, dig in, reinforce, uh, you know, maybe call up more 
or men, but to try and give the Russians, a, a, to, to turn the tables on them a little bit and force them to encounter some of the difficulties that the Ukrainians encountered when they went on the offensive. And that means that, at least for the foreseeable future, I don't see the war itself being decided by gains of territory on, on one side or the other, right? It's going to come down to political decisions. It's going to come down to perceptions of leadership in, in both Kiev and Moscow about the ability and willingness of their populations to continue going on fighting this war. And a lot of that is going to have to do, unfortunately, with decisions that get made here in Washington about the continued level of support that we're willing to give to the Ukrainians. Yeah, and this is something we're coming kind of full circle and we're bumping up against the end, but there is kind of an aspect of this that I wanted to just kind of blow by you to kind of bring the podcast full circle. We started with Navalny, we ended with Ukraine. I want to tie them together. The death of Navalny, um, we're getting pretty strong statements coming out of the U.S. administration on this. One mm-hmm. wonders if this might move that needle uh, in the U.S. Congress and, uh, you know, Senate's passed the aid package. Mm-hmm. The House looks like Speaker Johnson's not going to take it to the floor. There's talk of a mm-hmm. discharge petition that's very, very difficult, but it could happen. Yeah. But the death of Navalny mm-hmm. might move the needle here. Am I being too optimistic and getting ahead of the <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've been very reluctant to make myself optimistic about American politics in yeah. its current state. I think if it were just about Ukraine, this would have happened already. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that Ukraine, or Russia for that matter, is is really the issue that, that's holding up the, the supplemental in Congress. It, it, it's American domestic politics, some of which has to do with the border and migration, and some of which has to do with the election. And until or unless the calculations of the people making those decisions around those particular issues changes, I, I don't think we're going to see, you know, huge shifts. Now, maybe this discharge petition idea gains, gets legs. Maybe enough Republicans decide that they've had it with, with Mike Johnson as speaker and, you know, we're back to the drama of grasping the poison chalice to become speaker <laughs> of the House. But in, in its current configuration, I, I don't have a lot of optimism that things are going to, that the ground is going to shift, you know, even with the, the death of Navalny. Yeah, I mean, I guess my, one of the thoughts that went through my mind is like, if the legacy of this were that it got this passed, I mean, you talk, you know, talk about uh, what the Russians call a Bratnirazal thought, you know, in terms of what Putin was hoping to achieve here. I'm just mm-hmm. wondering if this kind of you know, changes the political calculus a little bit, um, makes it, a discharge position yeah. more likely, makes it Maybe politically it untenable not to bring this to the floor. Because if you bring it to the floor, it passes. The it votes passes are there. Right. Yeah, it passes yeah. easily if, if, yeah. if you bring it to the floor. It's just getting yeah. it to the floor. All right. Well, that, that's, uh, that kind of brings us up to the end. I'm keeping an eye on the clock. Anything you want to add before we wrap it up, Jeff? Oh... <laughs> You don't have to. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. I think we do, we've covered a lot. So, yeah, we have. We had. We we we, we kind of had to call an audible uh, a few hours yeah. ago, flipping flipping the the, the themes around. But uh, that's all we have time for today. Unfortunately, I'd like to remind you: you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlanta Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Washington, D.C.'s historic Capitol Hill neighbor has been Jeff Mankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. I should also add that Jeff's views are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of the NDU or the United States Department of Defense. Jeff, thank you for an enlightening discussion and making us all a whole lot smarter. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
Thanks for coming on. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Jareer Rahman is ably filling in for Lance Ligas in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. Jareer also handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, 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 many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power of Local Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big, fat five-star rating and review because that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. You can also follow us on Threads and Blue Sky at Power Vertical. And check out the new Power Vertical newsletter on Substack. Um, it's actually, there's actually content on there now, so <laughs> you, can, you can access that. Uh, join us again next week. Until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.